90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, I will say that today there was a definite, uh, I, I don't know, a definite hard data point that showed that I'm clearly affected by these last three years is that I thought that we didn't have spring break and that our classes started January 25th, but that was last year. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Had it down in my calendar and everything. So today kind of sucked because now I lost an entire week of, of prep time. <laughs> It's like one of those realizing it's not Friday. Yeah. When mm -hmm. you've thought it's Friday all day. Days. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my Lord. And you had 12 things that were due, you know, the day before or something. Um, I will say this isn't the first spring semester I've done this. Um, at least it's still a couple of weeks away. There was one spring semester that I was in the office on Friday and I was talking about what I was going to do next week. And somebody said, didn't you have, don't you have classes? They start. And I said, class doesn't start next week. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it does. So I only had a day to get ready then. <laughs> Should be a professor, kids. It's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird day. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you prepared for the, the cold front? It's marching oh. towards you tomorrow. I know. Oh, man. I'm going to have to. I I need to find a heated water apparatus for my chickens. <laughs> that's what I need to do tomorrow morning, first thing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my plans. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I should already have one, but I've just been trucking water out there to them by hand. So, mm -hmm. that's uh, that's my plans for this cold front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's supposed to get uh, get pretty cool. We'll be down well below freezing here. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the highs are like 20 or something? Yeah, and, you know, we've been down in the teens once. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm curious if that's all we're going to have. Because last year, you know, we had that massive storm in yeah, February like where everybody got in the negative something Fahrenheit. Yeah, that was not okay. That was very ridiculous. But it's like it's supposed to be 65 on Saturday. Yeah. <sighs> yep. Yeah. Climate change. It's real, kids. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I've, yeah. I've been waiting so long. I've been trying to paint the uh, the ah. tug, that, the airplane tug that I'm restoring. Uh -huh. <laughs> and my garage is staying too cold. So I finally uh -huh. had to get a trailer and trailer it up to my shop ah. and let it sit in there for a day or two. Gotcha. And then kill a lot of brain cells breathing paint fumes mm-hmm well now it's painted <laughs> now it's painted and it's uh, uh. a beautifully safety orange bed liner oh man that's great can you please put some googly eyes or something i love when those things have those <laughs> oh yeah uh, okay good <laughs> oh just yeah making sure just making sure um yeah that's gonna be a rough day tomorrow but that's okay <laughs> well you know if there's uh if you got enough water out and about might get icy. That was that was beautifully done. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> and if you get a lot of ice, yeah, you can get some pretty interesting 
formations, effects, phenomena uh, that glaciologists love and study and exploit to understand more about the movement of ice and glaciers. And you thought it would be fun to pick a few fun glaciological terms and sort yes. of define them and talk about them. Uh, I figured we better, you know, study them while we got them. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so this idea, which I'm sure will probably span a couple of shows, um, <laughs> is it came from, I was reading this book by Robert McFarlane called Underland. And he's not a scientist, but it was a semi-scientific exploration into like below the surface of all these different places. And it was a really cool book. My book club disagreed and didn't like it. I mean, it was a little philosophical. It's a nature-y book, but you know, not a science book. But one thing they did was they went to these glaciers and they kept talking about Mulans, not the Disney movie. Um, Mulans? Mulans, yeah. Mulan. I don't speak French. Uh, so I think Mulan Rouge because, you know. So I didn't know what that was. And I thought, this is weird. <laughs> That, I mean, yeah, there's some very weird things, but this isn't necessarily an unusual thing, but I'd never heard of this because I haven't had a glaciology class. And so I wanted to talk about it because I wanted to look it up. And <laughs> a totally different word, not the one that you're thinking of at all, uh, but a funny story about pronunciations. So in fault mechanics, there's this word, the French word detachment. Ah, uh, I love between this word. <laughs> Between two, you know, like the overriding plate, say, uh, I believe it's D-E-C-O-L-L-E-M-E-N-T. Yeah, Decoma. Yeah, okay. So mm -hmm. we had a reading seminar when I was in grad school. Oh. And we were reading a bunch of papers that talked about this structure. And some professors said, Decoma. Decolma, Decolmoy, like it had all these <laughs> crazy pronunciations. And finally, <laughs> we went and found a French postdoc. Oh my gosh, to come in and give you a. <laughs> and I was like, you have to tell us how to say this because I'm sure that none of us idiots are saying this right. <laughs> and <laughs> he looked at it, and I still to this day do not know how much he was just messing with us. Uh, but looked at it and he goes, De Coleman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how we said it after that. <laughs> but, but I loved everybody putting all these overly French accents on it. And then the French oh. guy says, De Coleman. Coleman. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That is lovely right there. <laughs> yeah. So sorry to derail, but. Uh, nope. That's fantastic. <laughs> that I, I am applying that to this term as well and hence saying moolin moolin <laughs> you get them moolins yep <laughs> <laughs> all right let's talk about moolins um that's hilarious <laughs> so it's <laughs> gosh now i want to look up like i need to listen to this youtube like, if somebody actually speaks french <laughs> and is not going to mess with us <laughs> please tell me how to say this word <laughs> yeah because i always said decomant too like fancy fancy French word. Gosh, I hope it is de Colment. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Moulin. <laughs> I can't even do it without overly emphasizing the moo. <laughs> right. But Moulin Rouge means red mill. 
it is a windmill. But in this case, this means mill as in grinder. And still with just that, I still don't know what this is, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Glacier. doesn't really tell you. Yeah. You, you think something like under the glacier that's grinding yes. up rock or something. Maybe. Yes, yeah, okay. correct. That's what you I would, would think be wrong. <laughs> yes, completely. Um, so it, the picture in his book of the molen that they went to was this like, this was like eight meters across or something like that. And he talked about for many, many pages. I clearly couldn't wait to see what this was. Um, the sound of the mullen, like it was so loud. And I'm like, what, what could this be? <laughs> That's so loud that it keeps you up. And like he, because it's not necessarily a very scientific book. It was very, you know, talking about like otherworldly sounds that were coming out of this thing. And like, what, what is this portal to hell doing on this glacier? But it kind of was what it was. And it's this hole. And in many cases, it's like very steep sided. And there's, like I said, it was eight meters across where meltwater just like pours down into. And in the summer, obviously it's like a river going down there. Yeah. And these things can drain glacial lakes in days. Yeah. So this is so weird. So, I mean, you have to get, you've got all this meltwater. Where's it going to go? Right. Um, and so this is where it goes. And these form, so I didn't put crevasse on here because I feel like that's something. If you talk about a glacier, that's what you talk about a lot. So it's just a crack. It's a big crack. It could be a tiny crack. It could be, you know, all the way down to the bottom crack. Um, so these moulins are, they form near crevasses. And they're kind of on these flat parts of the glacier because he talks about they like camped on the glacier near it. And they form these depressions. All the water goes into it. Sometimes if they're sort of, it's not like a hole like you would imagine looking down a well. Sometimes it can be a, in a lower spot anyway. So it's got a glacial lake on top of it. Right. And then it's still drained down that way. But all this water has to go somewhere. And so it forms near these crevasse fields. You have all these moulins, which are just these holes with waterfalls in them. That's crazy. <laughs> and they like caved down it. <laughs> yeah. So people can rappel down in these. You can get access to subglacial caves. Um, <laughs> you think about it. Okay. Imagine an ice sheet that's hundreds of meters thick. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, imagine something very temperate, very warm, that's only 100 meters thick. Water free-falling for 100 meters gets a lot of energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing this is hence the grinding part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you talk mm-hmm. about some erosion. Yeah. It was so... So in the book, they go down it, um, and he, of course like swings off and is in and out of this meltwater, which is literally near freezing. Um, but he talks about, cause he started down the side and then it opened up. And so this is, I guess a place where you can commonly form glacial caves is because of these Mulans. Yeah. And the subglacial, we've talked about subglacial hydrology, some on here ourselves uh-huh. and with guests, and we need to do some more, uh, there's all kinds of stories from people in the field finding some very interesting 
just one atmosphere openings, caves under glaciers, or like digging and having water shoot out highly pressurized <laughs> oh. under glaciers. Oh, scary. Um, almost having students drown in tunnels. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of weird subglacial hydrology that goes on. And for there to be subglacial hydrology, there has to be the hydro. And one of the big ways to get it down there is moulins. Yeah. And so th- that's all this water has to go to the bottom of the glacier and then out. And so if you have a bunch of these and you have a lot of meltwater, maybe you can speed up glaciers a whole lot. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I have not looked into that at all. So I would just suspect that's true. Yeah. So, but I know it does weird stuff down there, so maybe not. Yeah. If you get a lot of water, uh, you can cause a glacier to have a a jump or a surge. Mm -hmm. If you get the subglacial pressure high, you can actually float the whole glacier on a thin layer of water. Right. Uh, yeah, so it definitely affects, you know, in an ice stream, uh, two ice streams can move many meters a day, and they're heavily tidally modulated because the tide changes the water pressure uh, under the glacier and these glacial surges. Oh, so strange. Super strange. Uh, what is that line? I can't remember it right now. The line between where you have ablation and and accumulation. Do you remember that? Oh, so like where you're losing ice mass versus where you're gaining ice mass. Mm-hmm. I know there's exactly like an, what you're talking about, but I don't know the term. Yeah. There's like an equilibrium line, which I mean, okay, well that's enough. That makes sense. Right. So basically where you're not melting anything. So obviously these moulins are all in the part where you're ablating the glacier, not where you're, you know, gathering ice every year. Right. Mm-hmm. I had, to, I had to figure out that word. Um, yeah, it's a really weird thing. And, you know, like I said, I don't know a ton about glaciers, but I hadn't heard this before at all. And if you Google these, they are terrifying and they are very otherworldly, which is why I made it into this book. But <laughs> some of these pictures are real creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just. Yeah. I don't know if you falling through that. a long long distance to the bottom of a glacier. Uh-huh. They all seem like super huge too. Like, I guess because everything's melting, I don't know. But they all seem pretty big. And that's right. just terrifying. Yeah, real strange. Um, and so if you see a leg on top of a glacier, there's probably one of these in the bottom of it. So don't, you know. That's crazy. <laughs> right. And I'm trying to desperately find the right spelling for this, Uh, but I I have heard glacial jumps referred to as hockaloops, jockaloops. Oh, weird! Lots of vowels that don't make the right sounds. Mm -hmm. Words. Right now, I'm not having the right (laughs) the right Google foo. Uh, Yeah, because I just got jackalope when I. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and there's lots on glacial <laughs> surges. Maybe it's not in the literature that much, uh, but I have heard them refer to that, oh, as that colloquially. It's also for the um, <clears throat> magic players out there. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a card in magic. 
the gathering. It's it's a card that destroys everything based on like a deluge. Hmm. Yeah, because of that, you know, it costs four mana to play. Uh, okay, yeah, that's that's out of my wheelhouse. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is really cool. So there's a pronunciation in Wikipedia. I'll have to hit that afterwards. Um, it. What's interesting is, you know, there are glaciers. So the one that's written about in the book is the Nud Rasmussen Glacier, I'm guessing is how you pronounce it. Um, and it's in Greenland. And so obviously a lot of these words come from places up north where there are glaciers all the time. And there's a lot of inhabitants, human inhabitants that have been around glaciers long enough to say, hey, this is what we're going to call this glacial feature that occurs on all these different types of ice that we live on right yeah so that's icelandic the hockle loop or whatever mm-hmm. yeah okay did did you find it i did <laughs> yes yeah yeah uh-huh glacial yeah. outburst flood that seems really cool yeah okay so uh, i just listened to the pronunciation for moulin mula oh okay is the pronunciation i got there okay because uh, if you're going to say Moulin Rouge, you know, that's how you say it. So Yeah, fair. That's where I got my, that was my backstory for it. <laughs> okay, so even though Hockaloomp is going to be one of my words, uh, I guess, <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and sneak in another one while we're talking about subglacial movement. Oh, okay. Weirtman Tombstone. Okay, so I'm trying to, I taught this class when I first started teaching, and it was extreme environments. And it was, we spent a third of the class on deserts, and a third on glaciers, and a third on outer space stuff. So I might be wrong. I'm just trying to remember what this is. Are these the little things that form on the bottom that are like little chunks of rock that stick up and affect... Yeah, so there are little little pieces of rock that stick up, and they control the movement of the ice. Right. And it doesn't have to be big, right? No, like a centimeter cube is pretty typical analysis size for these. Okay, because this is... Hmm. Okay, I'll let you go ahead. I don't remember this very well, but... So imagine a minefield of Legos set out by your son. (laughs) done <laughs> okay so don't have to imagine <laughs> you've got this minefield of legos and then you get some freezing rain you get ice on them okay and now you're trying to and that's your glacier and you're trying to push this ice uh because you are some other force of nature okay right so it's a glacier that's flowing out towards the sea let's say and it's going over a bumpy bed now is the bed a bunch of little tombstone looking things sticking no it's not but we can approximate it as that for mathematical analysis and see how good we get right all right so there's some characteristic size of these and there's some characteristic spacing of these that we use for our analysis Uh, this idea was put forward by weirdman in 1957 in a pretty famous paper called on the sliding of glaciers oh okay yeah and uh it's more complicated than you would think. So, okay, if the ice is just trying to flow over these, well, it can't. The 
they're very, let's say they're small asperities on the scale of a centimeter, the ice is going to have a very hard time flowing around them, like deforming and flowing. It, it would, okay. but it would be very slow. You're depending on dislocation creep at that point. Right. Yeah. Because you got to have somewhere for the, uh, yeah, for that ice to compress. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. But glaciers can move pretty fast. So we know that's not right. Now we know some of them are floating, but let's say they're not because there's also some ones that aren't floating that move pretty fast. Okay. Okay. Uh, we know that ice doesn't just like slide off a mountain. So there's something holding it back. And we can calculate what the force holding it back should be based on the thickness of the ice and the slope and so on. And figure out what the driving, what's the potential energy driving that ice mass downhill. And that's what's going to be pushing against the uphill side of these little tombstones, right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Now, here's where it gets cool. What happens to the pressure of the ice as it approaches that face of the tombstone? I mean, you would assume it would get higher, right? Yeah, it goes higher. Right. And what happens to the melting point of ice with increasing pressure? Everybody knows about it with like salt and stuff, but what about with increasing pressure? Goes down. The melting point. Oh, no. Goes up. Goes up. Sorry. Yes. It's easier to melt it's ice. It's easier to melt. That's what I meant. This is like saying, turn the AC down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, up means higher. Yeah. So now you got water forming near these Now you've things. got water forming. And it's, you know, it's like those little ice presses that they use to press the ice spheres mm-hmm. uh, for your, for your scotch and Splenda or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, actually it's a very similar process. <laughs> so, um, the, the ice melts. And on the back side of that tombstone, on the downhill side, what's the pressure of the ice? Well, you've got gravity trying to pull the ice downhill, so the pressure is right. low there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, what does water do when there's a pressure difference? Now it's going to freeze on that side, right? Or is it going to bubble up? What's going to happen? Well, well, first it flows. <laughs> right. So water flows yep. from high to low pressure, so mm-hmm. it squirts around the tombstone. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And it goes to the low pressure side. Well, now low pressure freezing point changes again. Right. Now it goes actually back up, right? And the water freezes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what happens when water freezes? It releases heat. It expands. Well, no. (laughs) I mean, it does. Okay. Yeah. But freezing heat. Gotcha. It freezes, it releases heat. Which is going to melt some more ice? Colder on the uphill side of the tombstone. So (laughs) heat flows through the tombstone from the low pressure side to the high pressure side and melts the ice more. Melts more. Oh, this is crazy. This is a great thermo problem. (laughs) Oh, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Oh, sorry, kids. This is going to be a homework problem for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. The ice doesn't deform but it moves around this <laughs> these asperities in this nice. way that has heat conduction it's got pressure melting point changes oh my god it's got hydrologic flow it's so a beautiful it problem gets around here by changing oh my gosh okay by changing state which changes all the pt conditions now what's really cool is on the downstream side where the water is freezing back. Why is it freezing? 
Well, it's just freezing because the pressure drops. Mm -hmm. That's a process called regulation. Isn't that the process of making soil? (laughs) No, wait, that's regolith. Sorry. (laughs) So regulation. Okay. And you might say, well, okay, yeah, but the heat generated from the ice regulizing is minimal. It's actually a very significant part of the energy balance here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because remember, water has, I mean, it it releases a lot of heat. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is how we keep hurricanes, our heat engines, right? Yeah. Those are just little drops of water too. Yeah. So what's really fun to do is you can calculate, and I had to do this as a test problem. (laughs) Uh, You can calculate with different thermal conductivities what the rate of the ice movement is going to be. Heck yeah. And you can do an experiment. You can set out two blocks of ice. And you can hang weights by wires over them. Use fishing line for one and use copper wire for the other. Mm-hmm. The copper wire will go through its ice block much faster than the fishing mm-hmm. line because its thermal conductivity is so much higher. Also, what's the coolest thing to me is at the end of the experiment, the weight and the copper wire fall out of the block and it's one solid block of ice still. You didn't cut it. It just went through it. That's awesome. Very cool experiment. Yeah, that's super awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I've never, I mean, I know about that experiment. I guess I've never had it applied to... What's happening in glaciers, you know? Yeah, so Weirdman tombstones, that's what is, well, in in theory, a lot of what's doing a lot of the regulating of the ice movement. Now, we know it's a lot more complicated than that now, but it's still a really elegant idea and still one that we apply. Yeah, that's great. And that was from, when was that paper? Uh, so, let's see, I believe 57, I just had it up. Uh, yeah, 57. 57, okay. That's cool. That was great. Yeah, so hmm. Weirdman Tombstones. I mean, the, the the funny part of the word, I guess, is really somebody's name. I know. Um, <laughs> but but tombstones, you don't really think of that in glaciology, especially not no. when you say little Lego-sized things. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking, oh, these huge blocks, and so therefore it's a, it's a big impediment. But I mean, it's still a big impediment, but it doesn't have to be big in no. spatially anyway. It, it's one of those things that I love where a little – Little things can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. That is such a cool, that's just a cool thermodynamics problem. That's really neat. Yeah. Really neat. So mm. there you go. Weirtman tombstones. What's your next word? Well, so uh, the next one is not nearly as exciting, but it's one that I always think about um, because I like to read books on this. It is Serac. Or maybe it's Serac. Wasn't that Spock's father? Yes, it was. Um, so when we talk about the planet Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so these are, if you read obsessively, if you read mountaineering books like I do, I'm not a mountaineer, but I obsessively read about them. <laughs> you read about Seracs a lot because they're the cause for lots of death when you're mountaineering. And what they are is when you have these crevasses, And in some places you'll have crevasses intersect 
And so you've got these two cracks that intersect and that leaves in that intersection a big block of ice. And it can be a block, it could be a column, but the point is the glaciers are moving. And so all those blocks and columns can get jumbled up. And some of them are like really high as well because it's all getting deformed on various time scales. And those seracs are these like big hanging pieces of ice that are going to come down. And some of them are huge, like house size or larger. Yeah. So I, I'm going to get hate mail from structural geologists and glaciologists on this one. <laughs> um, they're kind of like horsts. <laughs> I think that's a fine interpretation. Uh, your pop-up blocks <laughs> yeah if you get like you said if you get a lot of cracks that are making a weird pattern you're going to end up with some i mean hey anybody that's tried to make cheesecake sees this right yes exactly <laughs> um you, you get this block that something's going to happen to it's either going to have to drop down or mm-hmm. come out and that depends on the geometry of how these cracks intersect and yet yeah, these these will kill you yeah and so you commonly find um, these near ice falls. So when you've got these, I mean, glaciers create these big hanging valleys, right? Um, and mountains are steep. So when the glacier gets to as far as it can go and it goes to fall off, you get a lot of crevasses there because you've got like flexural bending of the glacier and therefore you get a lot of seracs in these ice falls. So like ice falls are really dangerous places anyway. Like the Kumbu ice fall on Everest is one place where there have been lots of deaths. And a lot of those deaths are because of falling seracs. Yeah. And these are very otherworldly to look at too. If you just Google serac or Kumbu ice fall, they're creepy. And some of these seracs are super pointy and they just look like, I mean, they look like little mountains within the glacier. Or they can look like little mountains within the glaciers themselves. Right. And they're not so little. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was one. That's a weird word that you see often associated when you're talking about what the landscape of an actual glacier is. And you might hear about, you know, tragedy, generally tragedies in the Kumbu Icefall. But that's one of the deadly places to cross when you're going up. Everest, not from the Chinese side, from the Nepal side. Yeah. And I will say I went through a phase of reading mountaineering books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, read quite a few. Uh, Into Thin Air is a great one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That is, that's the, yeah, that one. And um, this is a fiction book, but the Iger Sanction is a really good one, too. Um, it's by this guy Trevanian. It was a, it was a movie. I think, God, I think Clint Eastwood was in it, but the Iger is a mountain. I got to make sure I'm not. Yep. Yeah. Clint Eastwood did this. Um, this is a real weird look into my, my life actually, because my mother loves Clint Eastwood (laughs) and she used to watch this movie. And I think it like implanted in me that I was like, Oh, the Iger, that's a really big mountain. That's kind of (laughs) cool. Where this guy, where Clint Eastwood's a spy, not his normal um, thing, but this is a really cool book that talks a lot about mountaineering because it's the spy and all these other people on the Iger, which is a very famous uh, mountain in Europe. And so, yeah, they talk about, there is some glacial stuff in that book as well. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And so, John Williams did that film score too. Just going to throw that out there. It's from the seventies. Real good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there you go. Those are some fun glacial words for your week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, don't you think we can come with, come up with, we can come up with many more, right? Oh, there's lots. Um, yeah, there's yeah, whether we do a happening. whether we do a consecutive show on them or not, we'll see. I don't, yeah, we will see. But ice is strange. <laughs> I, I hesitate to commit to very many consecutive shows of something because we always get distracted by something shiny. <laughs> yes, the future may hold this. That's all we'll say. Yes. <laughs> and the next week, and we're like, oh, what are we going to talk about? We can just fall back on it and act like it was planned. There you go. I mean, speaking of, you know, no, there's not a segue there. You're going to have to beat me on that one. <laughs> speaking of jumps and yakalooms, <laughs> it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> Where did you come up with this? Okay. So there's a backstory to this paper. I, I assumed so. <laughs> um. My wife has not been feeling well, and so we've been watching a lot of Netflix in the evening while she's just relaxing and trying to trying to get the energy together for another day. Mm-hmm. And it suggested this Netflix show called We Are the Champions. Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. <laughs> this is a small series narrated by Rain Wilson of The Office. Mm-hmm. Where he goes to, well, he doesn't go to, but he narrates the camera crew going to and documenting competitions that you didn't know existed. Oh, okay. Like hot chili eating, dog dancing, and frog jumping. (laughs) And in this documentary, they made a statement that it was all about the frog jockeys. Yes, that's what they're called. Because the frog jockey, you know, I thought, well, this is just, it's random chance, which frog jumps the furthest. And (laughs) they said, no, no, it has a lot to do with the jockeys. And then they mentioned something about a researcher at Brown having confirmed this. And I was like, well, there's a fun paper. So hence the Journal of Experimental Biology, by Astley et al. <laughs> Not Rick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was really hoping it was R. Astley, but it wasn't. I know. <laughs> uh, 2013. And it um, is Chasing Maximal Performance, a Cautionary Tale from the Celebrated Jumping Frogs of Calaveras County. So if that is ringing a bell for you and you know that you haven't intended this or read this paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology... Um, that is a short story by Mark Twain, which when I said this, I was like, what, how, how do I know about this? And it's because I read that short story. I don't know if you had to, it's called the celebrated jumping frogs of Calaveras County. I had no clue about it, but in this documentary, Rain Wilson mentioned it and said, go read it. It's amazing. (laughs) Yes, it is amazing. I was so excited about this just because of that. Um, yeah. It's a great story. It's super great. Enough that it stuck with me all of these years. Uh, this is amazing, but it's amazing for a lot of different reasons, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, so there are research scientists who deal with what can animals physiologically do. Mm-hmm. And the main way they know, like, how far an American bullfrog can jump is by putting it in the lab and saying, jump. Yes. And they measure it. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. And it turns out that's not always the a measure of maximal performance. Yeah, and so it how would out. they know, right? Because everything we do in the lab, we think, oh, that's great. But yeah, maybe it, it turns out standing there in your... Uh, you know, white lab coat. Well, that probably doesn't make the frog scared. So it just jumps. It's like it's going from point A to point B. It's an everyday average jump. But if you do what these uh, these frog jockeys do, which is scare the ever-living crap out of these things, <laughs> they jump a lot further. <laughs> oh, man. So did you read the actual paper or just the scientific... Oh, I read the whole paper word for okay, word. Okay, great. I hoped you did. Yeah, because there was a thing in here, right, um, about uh, – do you have the sentence flagged where the frogs can tell the difference between <laughs> scientists and – Oh, yeah, and discussing... a reptilian predator stalking right, them or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. So they're discussing the difference between like, why? well, why wouldn't a frog jump as far as it can – you know, in the lab, and it said that it suggested that frogs can tell the difference between a scientist that wants them to jump and something trying to kill them. <laughs> there was a lot of really good one-off lines in this paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, also, a phrase I never thought I would read or yes. hear, rental frogs. <laughs> numerous times (laughs) so in addition to comparing the laboratory jumps to the jumps at the uh the calaveras county frog jumping contest (laughs) they also broke it down into a couple of groups there are the professional jumpers Mm -hmm. which i mean it's different frogs every year they release them after the contest um but it's the professional frog jockeys. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and the, the amateurs that just want to go out and have fun. And mm-hmm. if you're an amateur, you probably don't go out. And you know, on this documentary, it showed people, like a couple of them with trucks on each side of a canal, and they kept it secret where it was, and they're going out and <laughs> catching their frogs there. Um, but if you just walk up to this thing and you're like, that looks fun. I'd like to try it. You can rent a frog. Yes, exactly. Um, this is another phrase that I flagged that you do not often find. Um, because I said, okay, these frog jockeys are so much better. Well, are they special frogs? <laughs> right. Professional frog jockeys do have favorite and secret locations for catching frogs, so we cannot rule out the possibility that populations of frogs with exceptional anatomy or physiology exist. Got a bunch of jacked frogs over here. Exactly. (laughs) We doped this marsh with some jacked frogs. (laughs) Oh, man, I thought that was really good, too. (laughs) (laughs) So what was really fascinating to me, well, first of all, they went to this thing, which, uh, oh, the proper title is the Calaveras County Frog Jumping Jubilee. Yeah, obviously. Um, 
It's four days long. <laughs> Which has been going on since the 1800s. <laughs> yes. Uh, over 80 years of this. And there are some teams that have been competing for like three or four generations. Also hilarious. <laughs> yep. Uh, the record was set in 1986 by Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> and the way they do this is they let the frog <laughs> jump three times. And the sum of those distances, they have to be straight line, mm-hmm. is the score. And Rosie the Riveter <laughs> set a distance of 21 feet, 5.75 inches. Which is huge. Yeah. And so in the lab, the average frog jumps were like four and a half feet or something, right? Well, so it's a single jump. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, yeah. So as opposed to Rosie's average of seven feet. Yeah. And they have some histograms in here oh, where they take all of the, the bullfrogs at the contest and they mark the laboratory, like what the scientists say in the papers is the maximum performance of a frog. And it is well on the downside. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting because they were talking about how the, the rental frogs have sort of a bell curve of distances jumped, but there's definitely a skewness in the professional frogs. <laughs> the pro- mm, yeah, professionally handled frogs. Yes, <laughs> professionally jumped frogs. That's what it is. Towards you know really high distances of like you know one and a half meters and greater. Yeah, so the the laboratory average is on the upper end of the distribution for a rental frog or a non-professional jockey. (laughs) So, and, you know, I I started wondering, and they mentioned it, and then I went back and reread in a little more detail. How did they get this data? So they made a trip out here, and somebody sat in the stands and videoed all the frog jumps. Yeah. And they would go down and put a grid, calibration grid, on the stage before they started videoing. And at the end of the day, they would go with a tape measure set to a fixed length and put it several different places on the stage so they could make sure that their calibrations were right. Mm -hmm. And then, I'm going to assume undergraduates, but a couple of poor students had to go (laughs) through these videos and mark the frog locations and then a MATLAB uh. script reduced this to actual distances. And they did this for over 3,000 jumps. So many frogs. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, and so what's cool about this paper scientifically is that one of the questions they're investigating is like, what kind of sample size do you need to detect maximal performance? Because if you're talking about What's the best thing that species can do? I mean, it takes a long time to find a Usain Bolt, right? So, that's the exact same analogy I was going to use. Oh, <laughs> How many times do you have to pick a person at random off the face of the earth to pick Usain Bolt? <laughs> it's like the most extreme thing I can think of. <laughs> yep. So yeah, um, so that was actually a really cool outcome of this too. You know. Yeah, and you know, there's quite a few. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they also decided that by looking at the video, they could tell that the rental frogs had a slower takeoff velocity and a lower angle of launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
resulting in a lower average and peak power than the Mm -hmm. professionally wrangled jockeyed frogs. Um, And don't get confused. These guys aren't actually on top of the frogs, but... (laughs) And Look so close in some close. if you watch the videos, yes. they uh, <laughs> they are chasing these frogs. Some of them are hopping right behind them. Some of them are blowing on them. Super um, weird. And that one that's in loud slow noises. Mo. Yeah, because okay, so and they're also kept the professionally jumped frogs are kept warm beforehand, whereas the rental frogs are just kept in the shade somewhere. And so the thermal distri- difference in their muscles probably plays a difference in that too yeah it showed some of the competitors in this documentary like they had tubs of water different temperatures and they were like doctor they measured the temperature of the water the frogs and they'd like add a little bit warm water oh my gosh Uh, they were they were very carefully controlling the temperature and then before they would jump like they were holding the frog as they went up on stage and they were like extending the legs and rubbing them and working them oh my lord giving them little muscle massages yeah doing that and so they drop them from a short height and then like do the jumping thing behind them they can't touch the frog but doing the blowing on them or jumping behind them like the frogs being chased by a predator to achieve this maximal performance and it's fantastic to watch we were dying (laughs) watching this i mean this video in here that third jump by that frog is so far yeah it's so far mm-hmm. and i think that was the winner was what the supplemental video was that's uh that's pretty impressive now interestingly <laughs> enough too just like many other competitions this one's maxed out yeah since the 80s when it- rosie one, right, that they haven't had many jumps in <laughs> maximal performance. Right. So uh, there's a graph in here, figure five, of the winning distance by year from about 1928 or so on. And you see that it steadily improves basically every year until, yeah, the late 70s or early 80s. And then it flatlines, <laughs> just like what you see in professional sports. And professional horse racing and professional greyhound racing. So we have enough data now that not only can you talk about what percentage of population do you need to sample to define maximal performance, but now you've got this temporal part of it as well, which is really cool. I don't know if there's any, I mean, this is probably obviously due to how they, they, how they achieve maximal performance. Yeah, this is 60 years of learning curve of how to scare a frog. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And it was perfected like many things in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah this, this was unbelievable. <laughs> so I highly encourage you to go watch that uh, documentary. <laughs> there's, uh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's one on extreme hair, hairstyling. Um, there's one on the oh, there's another one that we did the the cheese wheel roll. Oh my god! In England. Oh great! This um, one is crazy. People get really hurt on that thing. Oh yeah, they show some of the. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I um, learned about that on wait wait don't tell me. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Uh, a new Netflix series. There's not many episodes, so I mean you can binge it in an evening. 
Uh, Excellent. <laughs> and it's narrated by Rain Wilson, which is just astounding. That is good. And it's like, this is a really, this is a really relevant paper, despite being hilarious. And what I bet was ridiculously fun to go and sample in the field. <laughs> well, except for the undergrad that they're like, use it here with this camera. Oh, yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the PIs. <laughs> yeah. The PIs that were eating funnel cake. Exactly right. I'm hoping that one of the PIs is one of these guys dressed in Western gear <laughs> along <Right>. the side. <laughs> and I love that they thank them for their enthusiastic support. So obviously, the uh, committee had a great time doing this as well. <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, if if we see a significant uptick in the uh, jump distance, the three jump distance, we would know that somebody's either doctored their frog. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, or something, yeah, because we've basically found the physiological limit now. Oh, so interesting. Well, unlike most of our papers, that one wasn't really a lot of bull. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have got data on your own maximal three jump distance, or <laughs> would like to tell us how to pronounce French words. <laughs> Uh, or do your own regulation experiment. You can do this one at home. Oh. Uh, we would love to see those results. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're at Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, we're hanging out on the Slack channel sometimes, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.